don't set yourself up against the supernatural because you, you lose. Bible podcast. My name is Matt. With me today, I want to make her feel good. Karen, you're oh, first. Hello. I am first, except not because Matt was first. <laughs> well, yeah, that might end up in the blooper reel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'll end up. <laughs> oh, I was going to try to come up with something snarky, but you just made me go blank there. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> well, also with me today is Eric. Hey there. And Tracy. Morning. Good morning, guys. Um, you know, I'm going to... Normally we have a little banter here in the morning, which, you know, Karen's already got me going now because <laughs> I'm just... My, my mouth just wants to fly here. Uh, but... Um, Can any of us really do anything but follow you? Well, you have a point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, sometimes I try to be serious and it just doesn't happen. <laughs> because what I was going to say is I was going to kind of forego our morning banter here because because we've got a deep subject ahead of us. I have a feeling it's going to it's going to it's going to uh, occupy a lot of our discussion today. And unless we want this to be a three-hour-long uh, podcast today, um, I think it'd be best if we just kind of get into it here. No, let's mm. go. No, mm -hmm. jump into it. Okay. Well, we are continuing today with the book of First Samuel, and we begin with chapter 28. And... Uh, we get a couple of verses right off the bat that, that they're starting to set the stage for a story that's going to happen uh, here. You may recall that David had gone to live with the Philistines. He'd find, I guess he'd just gotten tired of the constant badgering and being chased by Saul, who was just deathly afraid that, that David was going to take the throne from him. And David had gone to live in, um, was it Gad? No, Gath. Sorry, Gath. With the, with the king, the Philistine king, Achish, and had been spending some time there and had been sort of making Achish believe that he was on his side and raiding the local areas while what he'd actually been doing was going to the, to the west and attacking the kingdoms that direction, the, the Amalekites and the Amorites, and I don't remember what all it said. All those guys that the Israelites were supposed to have been pushing out of their land to begin with. And that's what David had been doing right under Achish's nose while making him believe that he was a, an ally to Achish. And all of this, the, the whole reason of being with Achish was basically just to keep Saul off his back because as soon as he moved there, Saul stopped chasing him. But now the Philistines are gathering for war with Israel. And not terribly far away from uh, the town where where David was staying, um, the the name is drawing a blank with me right now. 
it comes up again later. Ziklag? You're talking about Ziklag? Ziklag, yeah. I don't think they were terribly far away, but at any rate, the Philistines are getting ready to go to war with the Israelites, like open war. And Achish is enlisting David to go fight with him. So that's sort of an opening stage for what's happening here. But we get into the real crux of the story when we get into uh, verse 3. It doesn't waste much time. And Saul has seen this army that's coming up, and he's freaking out. And I suppose you could probably start the story here by saying Samuel was dead to begin with. There can be no mistake made about that. If you're a uh, Dickens fan at all, you'll appreciate the... That was funny. Thank you. <laughs> but but you really do it, and it kind of does. You know, verse 3, Samuel had died, and all Israel lamented for him. So the idea here is you have to go forward understanding Samuel is dead. We talked about that on our last episode. He got a very brief mention of it. They just didn't make a big deal out of it. The writer didn't. But he is dead, and we're given that reminder in verse 3. This is This is the setup for... Saul and the situation we're about to encounter. So Saul is going to battle against the Philistines. And as far as he knows, David's with the Philistines. Right. He's, David's moved away, and Saul knows that David and his men are pretty formidable. Because remember, when Saul goes out against him, Saul picks up a, a ratio of at least 5 to 1. Uh, he favors 10 to 1 against David. And then all of a sudden, uh, the Philistines... And he thinks maybe David, too, is going to war. And he says that in, in verse 5, he says, His heart trembled greatly. And I think that that's probably about as scared as the English translation can get. And in verse 6, it says, And Saul, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim, or by prophets. So basically, what's happened here, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, if you've missed it, is that Saul has rejected God. God's been trying to reach out to Saul over and over and over and over again, and Saul's been hanging out. And Saul now tries to pick up the phone, and it's dead. There's nothing on the other end. The prophets are not. Because remember, here to put this into context, is that Saul killed God's prophets. Mm-hmm. Killed them. And he rejected the um, counsel of Samuel when he was alive. And Saul has acted presumptuously in the past against God and wouldn't take correction. And that's and this is where Saul is. He finds himself scared to death. He doesn't have anybody to ask. You, you know, I was looking at that as a as a different part too. Same same thing you were going after is, but I was thinking too. Sam uh, Saul used Samuel in a way almost as a crutch because he knew that as long as Samuel was there, he still had a line to God. Yeah. Even though he was making his mistakes and and had rejected God, I think he was still leaning a little bit with Samuel. There, there was still that possibility. And when Samuel left, he knew he was actually by himself now. Yeah. Where and he that, had that's... he had nothing. He couldn't he couldn't go back. He was pleading, you know, like you said, he picked up the phone and, and was dialing it 
to God and wasn't getting anywhere. And so I think that really, really drove it home where he was at spiritually. Yeah. It's not physically in front of another army. I just, I, I think that is so typical of people. I know that in this era, it was, there was sort of this human intermediary. But even now, I, I guess I, I look around and I see people who are so, they lean on their, on the people that they perceive to be their spiritual leaders so much that if that leader is gone, they feel lost. Yep. And this, this is a little bit different because <clears throat> at the time God had, had appointed these these judges and, you know, priests, and there was the priest system and the, and the sanctuary system. And so there was, I realized there's a little bit of a, a different spiritual setup, but I just, I feel bad that when I look around now, I still pe- see people doing that. They're like, no, my, I'll just ask, I'll just ask my pastor. And it, and it doesn't seem to occur to them that they have a direct line to the almighty. Yeah, or that they have responsibility. I mean, I've had people tell me, like, there was something that somebody wanted me to do at some point in the past. And they and I said, you know what? I just, ethically, I just, I can't do that. Well, just have your have your pastor say it's okay. Right. Like, Wait, what? Like, that's a thing? And so, yeah, to, to that point. Anyway, so Saul had been relying on Samuel, not only for a connection to God, but for... Um, for some semblance of pretense that he was still God's king. So he lost all of that. He's got nothing. So now he says, okay, um, in verse seven, seek out a woman who was a medium that I may go and inquire of her. And her servant said, behold, there's a medium at indoor. So the story gets interesting. Saul disguises himself. Now remember, this is the thing that'd be easy to forget is that Saul, remember when he was inaugurated, is a yes. full head taller than yeah. anyone in the country. So he's trying and he puts on his disguise and he goes in and he I mean he gets right to it. Before we go there, I was wondering, and I kept looking back, wasn't one of the first things that Saul did was go after all the mediums to kill them? And yes. get rid of them. Mm-hmm. So then I was thinking as I was reading, I was like, this is kind of Saul's, if you look at it as a, a backdrop and an overview of everything that Saul's accomplished, this was full circle for Saul. Yep. Where he started out doing God's will, prophesying, being anointed, and going after all the mediums, those that were against God, you know, spiritually. And now he's seeking them that's Saul's full circle at this point it is yeah and his actions coming up are rather hypocritical because like you said he had well earlier in the chapter he had he had actively tried to get rid of spiritists mediums people necromancers the whole deal mm -hmm. anybody anybody who would try to talk to the dead he had actively pursued them, tried to try to get them out. And I mean, mean, that part was, I guess you could say to his credit because God had made very clear. And I don't remember, I don't remember exactly where we talked about this before. 9 to 12. There you go. Where, I mean, this was, 
this was extremely offensive to God for anyone to go try to talk to the dead, which is exactly what Samuel decides that he's going to, not Samuel, which is exactly what Saul decides that he's going to try to do. And And the reason that that name Samuel keeps coming up is because that's who he asks to talk to. You know, and then I see too that even the medium was like, hold on. As we kind of progressed with that, she's like, hold on. You're trying to, you were trying to kill us a little while ago. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's common knowledge out there. Right. So here's, here's a, here's a thing to put this into context <clears throat> because today we have this idea that, ah, you're breaking the law. Like your windows are tinted too dark. You know, it's illegal. It's like, mm. yeah, who's it hurting? What's the big deal? It's like, you just keep rolling with it. So here's what actually God says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, starting at verse 9. When you come into the land that the Lord has given you, you shall not learn the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. Okay, we're like, oh yeah, that's pretty bad. Murdering your children, okay, mm-hmm. as an offering. We're like, most people are with that, right? That's terrible. Same sentence. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So, and we, we talk earlier, like, why would God take such a hard line against these people? that the Israelites were supposed to displace. There you have it, right there. These things are all in the same container. Necromancers, sorcerers, and and those who would sacrifice their children to these demon gods. So it's kind of not in the same category as, you know, your muffler's too loud. This is a big deal. Well, so Saul does take this hypocritical... Is it hypocritical at this point? Well, it is. He takes this, this tack at this point where he goes to this woman and asks to speak to Saul. And we had talked a little bit last week about... Samuel. See, there I go. Saul is <laughs> Samuel. Mm-hmm. Folks, go by what I mean, not by what I say. I'm a, I'm a parent, you know? Do what I say, not what I... Not, 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 do what I mean, not what I say. Oh, wants to talk to Samuel. Saul wants to talk to Samuel. And and oh, which is odd too because that was that was God's prophet held in high regard. Why would you think that he would do that? I that blew my mind. Right. We get some clues I think to the nature of what is seen coming forward here just in the description. She says, "I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth." So right away we should be getting a clue here that that th- this is maybe not what Saul is really thinking he's getting. You know, where 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 would we be? Where would people be expecting Saul to come from if if Samuel. Saul is a spirit out there, able to be called? Where would he be coming from? You know, it it certainly doesn't seem to me like he would be coming from the earth. Although you know we have, and we could talk about this just a bit here. In the past, we've talked about people dying, and we're told that they go to be with their fathers, right? Which 
generally just means they were buried in a common uh, in a common burial ground. You know, they, they went to be with their fathers in the in the tomb. They went to be with their fathers in the ground. But this is talking about uh, something coming up from the earth. Well, and, and, she's, and it says quite straight point out diff, diva. I'm in, I'm in the ESV. Mm-hmm. He says to this, she is she is a medium, no, no doubt about this. I mean, Saul identifies her as a medium. Her, her yeah, Saul's soldiers identify her as a medium. She identifies herself as a medium, saying, "Are you setting a trap for me?" So there's no doubt about who she is and what she claims to be. Mm-hmm. She claims to be a person who communicates with the dead for the living. And Saul says, divine for me by a spirit. So basically, there's some spirit that's going to do her bidding. And the spirit's not necessarily a spirit of Samuel. This spirit is kind of her fetch thing. She's going to make this spirit go fetch whoever she calls. And mm. to, to put this into context again, what's going on here? Leviticus 20, verse 6, if a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person, and I will cut him off from among his people. I mean, it is a, he is going straight into and doing exactly what he has been told exactly not to do. He's doing it. Well, this thing claiming to be Samuel, or actually at this point, I don't know that it's claimed anything. It says that Saul perceived that it was Samuel, which triggered something in my head, because it's like, he, he thought this would was be Samuel, and I'm thinking, well, he he didn't know, you know, so it, it seems to me there's another clue. If it, you think maybe, but you're not sure, you know, that this is who it says it is. But um, the spirit claiming to be Samuel, says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Just if we wanted to look at a traditional view of what happens to good people when they die, you wouldn't expect them to be coming up, right? Well, those are that's what happened here. But yeah. we, see, we saw Satan bring down fire from heaven mm-hmm. in Job. So mm-hmm. Satan can make it come from wherever he wants it to come from. So... Mm-hmm. We're showing the cards here as to what's going on. And where we're getting at here is that this is not the spirit of Samuel Mm. that's showing up. Mm -mm. Um, At first, the spirit shows up and the the medium can see the spirit, but Saul can't. And the woman shouts out. I mean, this is just part of the narrative. She's like, why have you deceived me? She's talking to Saul. And she's like, you're the you're the king. And. He says, hey, oh, yeah, hey, don't don't worry about it. Just tell me what you see. She says, I see a God coming up out of the earth. Now, just a quick flashback. Who was the first instance in the Bible that says you will not actually die? Satan. Or the Garden serpent. of Eden. Mm-hmm. You shall not surely die, for you'll become like God's. God's. Oh, wait. Oh, wait a minute. But here we see. Samuel's not actually dead, says the medium, and he now is like a god. So basically, she's conjuring up exactly what the serpent said to Eve. Mm. You know, I never disturbing. I never quite connected those dots that way. Yeah, me either. Me no, either. But you're you are. <laughs> I was going to say yeah, you're dead. On, you're dead on accurate, <laughs> but uh, that's a, that's maybe a little punny. Sorry. <laughs> 
Yeah, can't need, help some, himself. need some levity here because this is a this is a dark, dark, dark thing. Is that yeah. he is conjuring up what he has been explicitly forbidden to do, and I mean, and there's no there's no um, there's really no explanation given in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and elsewhere about why these are wrong. It's just God says. Do not go. In fact, this is so abominable. It's in the same category as sacrificing your children to these gods. And in fact, these practices are so abominable. That's why I'm asking you to actually clear away these races from the earth. Mm -hmm. So this is a big, big deal. He's going here. What's happening is unfolding exactly what the serpent said to Eve at the beginning. And so this idea that like, well, it happened. And so it must be it must be real is not a good excuse because here I want to read something to you out of Second Corinthians chapter eleven, and the author is saying he's talking about truth and falsehood because the idea that's like well if it's mentioned and it's there and I see it it must be true is not a good argument. Second uh, Corinthians eleven thirteen for such men are false apostles. Oh wait, like there can be real ones and false ones, people pretending to be. Absolutely. You see that all through the New Testament, that there are true and false. We'll see false prophets elsewhere in the Old Testament as well. So just because somebody calls themselves an apostle, a prophet, uh, doesn't mean it's true. Back to 2 Corinthians 11. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Like, whoa, they're going out of their way to disguise themselves for a nefarious purpose. Verse 14. And no wonder. For even Satan himself, or Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. I'll read that again. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. The point being is that Satan can make things look pretty much however he wants it to look. He can disguise himself as an angel of light. And he brought down, quote, fire from heaven in the book of Job. And everybody thought this was God's judgment. And Satan is called the, the uh, father of what by Jesus? Lies. Lies. So, you know, in, jo in Job, he also controlled the weather and he controlled yep. Job's health. The only thing he wasn't allowed to do was kill him physically. And that's only because God set the boundary there, not yeah, because yeah. he's not capable. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of power. That's well, you think out, he took out Job's family. Yep. Yeah. So this is this is kind of the context of what's going on here is this this isn't just some kind of some harmless little seance because, you know, it's easy to dismiss it and say, well, it was just some trick, some sleight of hand stuff, you know, because, you know, you pulse a few strings and you've got some background music and you got somebody behind the curtain doing the stuff. Yeah, there are cases of that. I'll admit that. But there are cases of significant how should we say, impact, reality, that show up when Satan wants to do his thing. Remember, when Jesus is asked by his disciples about the end of time, the first thing Jesus says is, do not be deceived. Like, they're asking a calendar question. When is this all going to happen? And Jesus answers with a strategic answer. Don't be deceived. Because... Many will come in my name and doing what? Working miracles. 
So this idea that 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 she's a fake and like none of this is actually happening, don't think that. Like this is actually going down. There's an actual spirit that looks like Samuel, sounds like Samuel. Saul thinks it's Samuel. And this is like this is not sleight of hand. And we'll get into this some more. And it's not the spirit of Samuel. Yeah. You mind if I share just a little thing here? We're talking about the spirit being able to look like Samuel. You know, the idea that this is like something old that doesn't happen anymore. You could put that idea to rest. My mom just mm, about two weeks ago, she called me up. She said she really wanted to talk. And so I, you know, she's my mom. I called her. She's listening. Hi, mom. <laughs> and she proceeded to tell me a story of something that happened to her the night before. She had been sitting out in the living room of their, of her, of she and my dad's house. And she just wasn't able to sleep well. And she notices someone walk out of the bedroom. And it looks like my dad. He, it, um, in pretty much every way, except that he's taller, he's broader, he's more well-built. And, you know, my dad's no, no wimp. It, but looks like my dad in every way. For whatever reason, completely naked. Weird. Just weird. Now, my dad's not dead. Okay, so let me, let me put that aside. But this person comes out of the bedroom looking exactly like my dad in almost every way. Walks out of the bedroom, walks into the kitchen. Uh, my mom says, what's the matter? You can't sleep? And this figure says, you know, something like that. It just walks out of the kitchen, turns around, walks back, goes back to the bedroom. That's it. My mom swears that she was not asleep. She swears she was not in that twilight that, you know, you can get into when you start seeing weird things. Swears it. And I, be, you know, I, I believe her. You know, she, she's smart enough to know when she has seen something and when she has dreamed something. So these things happen. This is, this is real stuff. My own wife, she has had encounters with things like this. She lived in a house on the other side of town here just before we got married. And we were going to go out on a date. She was waiting for me to come pick her up, and she had gotten into the shower, locked the door behind her because she's in a house with, uh, I don't remember, six other uh, women at the time, young younger women. And she's taking a shower. Suddenly, a hand pushes through the shower curtain and holds her up against, holds her up against the uh, the wall of the shower. There is nobody else in that place with her. She's the only one in that in that bathroom. Nobody can get in. The door is locked. She had seen a lot of things in that place. I had see, witnessed things in that place where we had, we would be watching TV out in the living room and things would fall off the shelves. Um, just strange, strange things. So what I'm what I'm trying to point out here though is that these things are real. They happen, and they create a lot of confusion. If you don't have a if you don't have a solid base of of what should be what God has what God has commanded on this thing, why he has said, don't mess around with these things. They can lead you down some, they can lead you down some, some dark paths. And, uh, yeah, you, you, you don't want to fool around with it at all. Well, even a little, so let's continue with the narrative and then go back mm -hmm. and take a look at what, what the impact some of these things are. 
Yeah. So okay. So Samuel, I'm gonna I'm gonna say Samuel. That's the way the narrative writes. It says it's Samuel. Um, but this this Samuel thing says, "Why have you disturbed me, bringing me up?" Uh, Saul says, "Well, God has departed me," and and this image says, "Well, why are you talking to me if God won't talk to you, or why you know why are you talking to me if God won't talk to you?" Which just can, kind of to me gives another clue here that this is that if God wanted to talk to Saul through Samuel, there wouldn't be a question about it, right? So all clues to the nature of this thing. Now, generally speaking, when Saul would go uh, to Samuel, he would get good advice. He would get things that should lead him to his salvation, if you will. From the Lord. From God, yeah. Yep. And the answers that he gets from from this Samuel thing are the dead opposite. He, you know, he gets some truth. Oh yes. Some truth mixed with an angle that is different. So, I mean, it's just, it's like any kind of temptation. If it looked all bad and awful, we would just say, Oh, no, thank you. But when it comes looking pretty good, it's like, look, come on. When you go, when I go fishing, I don't just throw a bare hook in the water. You've got to put something tasty on it. Yeah, so Saul's, you know, looking for what's going to hap- happen the next day, or, you know, with the battle. And the Samuel thing starts telling him definitely truths. But the, the crux of it is he's telling him that Saul and his sons are going to die. Israel's going to be delivered to the Philistines. Saul and his sons are going to die. And it leaves Saul terrified and weak. This is not, this isn't, um, this isn't an experience he's ever had with Samuel before. No. He's always gone to Samuel looking for looking for advice, looking for a means. And, and Samuel is always giving him a means towards betterment, towards uh, getting closer with God. And in this case, there is no hope given at all. Yeah. And that's, this, that's essentially what happens is this, is this, this, um, we'll use air quotes, Samuel shows up and says, yeah, you did the wrong thing and your kingdom is going to be gone. You and your sons are going to die. The end. Then, I mean, that's the end of the message. And then the end of the narrative is what happens is Saul falls down and basically he passes out because he hasn't eaten all day. And the, the medium says, "Uh oh, I'm going to be in trouble if he dies in my house. And so they make Saul eat. She and, um, and uh, Saul's assistants make him eat, and uh, he says, I won't, but then they urge him, and he does, and then um, she throws together a little veal super fast, then they ate, and then he goes away. So that's the literal story of what happens. Now, to unpack what's going on with this is to Matt's point, is what kind of message did Saul get? It was not a message of repentance. It wasn't a message of hope. It was only a message of doom. Now, remember, up until now, and we've had lots of clues, as we've been, is that Satan's been working with Saul's character. And he's been basically saying, hey, whatever you're doing, all your disobedience, it's okay. It's okay that you sacrificed yourself instead of waiting for, the, for God's priest, even though you were told explicitly. to. So he's feeling like everything he's doing is okay. You know, he's feeling like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. And then the spirit shows up and says, yeah, now you did it. You're beyond hope. You're going to die. 
see ya. So that was the message. So here's two other um, two other questions. Is that when this spirit arrives, here's two questions. One, would Satan have power if this were the case? If this is a theory, this is a hypothetical here, and we're going to come back to it and unpack this just a little bit. If Samuel were in God's sphere, let's say that he's his he was still conscious at some point in some way, would Satan actually have power to say, "Hey, from heaven, from God's presence, you come down here right now because I'm telling you to." That is one question. Second question is, would God? So if, if, if the devil couldn't call Samuel, would God send Samuel to do specifically what God had forbidden? So is God consistent? And if God is consistent, why would he at this point show up and say, you know, at the bidding of the devil I and what I've been forbidden, I'm going to go ahead and show up and, and do what you want me to do. So neither of those things fit. Right. But bigger than that is if we look at this at the scope of Scripture, we see that not only again are are we forbidden. Just again, God doesn't give context as to why. We can look elsewhere, and we will here in just a second. But there's one more text I want to read to you. Is that God just says no? This talking with the dead is a big no. Period. That's all. Isaiah eight nineteen and twenty. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Answer, to the teaching and the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no light of dawn. So God is saying, you don't ask, you don't ask the the necromancers and the spiritists and about the future, you ask me. I'm the one you come to. And Saul has repeatedly through his life said, I don't want your advice. 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 And finally, God eventually lets people have their choice. And Saul calls back. It's like, God's done. And Saul's left with, with going to this medium that's been explicitly forbidden over and over in so many different ways. And asks of this, he gets no hope. There's no sign that God would um, allow this or permit this or encourage this. It's just all, it's all, it's like any of those comedy skits you've seen where, where the answer is always no, 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 no. That's what Saul is actually getting here when he's doing what he's doing. Now, another question is, are the spirits out there floating around just, are the dead out there willing to help? I think that's a, a point we should at least touch on. But we talked about it before the podcast. If you're interested in seeing what the Bible says, not what these four people on the internet have to say about it, but you <laughs> want to see a Bible study about this and look and see what the Bible actually says. Uh, Matt said he put some resources in the show notes. And you can look them up in your own Bible. And there are things, there are revelations that we come to in our life. Sometimes we're like, whoa, that is not what I thought was the deal. And the Bible will reveal itself. And we encourage you 
to go there and look. Yeah, I will. I will put some some uh, some resources there in the show notes for you to look at. Hopefully, they will shed some more light on this subject. That probably for a lot of people, maybe a lot of our listeners, just the ideas that we're that we're presenting here might be a little shocking compared to things that we've been that maybe you've been taught in the past. But like Eric said, if you let the Bible reveal itself, it's, it, it becomes pretty clear on this subject of, you know, what happens when you die? Are there spirits out there floating around? Are they wanting to talk to us? You know, I think we've already presented that it's pretty clear God does not want us to do that. And there are, there's a good reason, there, you know, there's good reason why. You know, there's some good information out there as well, too, that really ties in all the um, the biblical verses that you could kind of look at. Of basically, like the state of the dead. Amazing Facts has some great stuff. Um, but, yeah, it's it, it, it's a very deep subject. And, mm-hmm. and I think, too, we just see exactly how far Saul had gone and away from God. Yes. Mm-hmm. So far. So, so I, I think that the, the main point that I got out of everything you said, Eric, is that God is like straight line, no, no leniency. Don't do this. Like, don't dabble with it. You're, you're tapping straight into the power of Satan. And he, I think, has the Satan, I believe, has the perfect capability of fooling us humans into yeah. believing our senses And so just stay away from it. And in this case, we're talking about, you know, are are dead people really dead or are they still around to give us advice? Mm -hmm. You know, but and I mean, there are so, so many people that believe that. Oh, my goodness. I can't even. There have been so many people in my own life that have been talking about this recently and just like, you know, having either fear or comfort. One lady at work just two days ago told me that after her mother died, she was over at her mom's house cleaning stuff up and she was grieving. She's bawling her eyes out. She's down in her mom's basement. She's bawling her eyes out going through this stuff. And then, you know, all of a sudden she feels her mother's presence beside her and her mother touches her on the back and she feels calm. And she says, mom, do that again, please do that again. And so her mother touches her again. And she's like, I'm just so happy that the dead are still with us. And I was just like, Ooh, honey, we need to talk. Right. So that's one side of it. And then on the other side, I've got another coworker that within the last two weeks was saying, you know, I just moved here and I'm, I'm living in this rental house and I don't know what it is. I, I was, so, I was so glad to move away from the town where I used to live because my house was haunted. And I used to struggle with going to sleep. I would lay in bed at night and the, there would be things moving around me and the house would make sounds that it that houses don't make. And I would feel this intense fear that I know wasn't coming from me. And I would feel pinned to the bed and on and on like this. She's like, it's here too. She's crying. She's so upset. She's looking around the house and she's, she's going, the rental house has it too. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Like the devil is alive and well. Yeah, yeah these things, they all... They all come across as very real, and it's because they are real. Yep. I, yes. you know, I yes. will I will tell you these are real. You know, you, you you might have seen some of these ghost hunting shows and stuff. I'm not talking Ghostbusters; it's one of my favorite movies. But you know, it's fiction. That's fiction. 
but you see some of these ghost hunting movies, and I wonder sometimes how much of that is put on, how much is just for the show. But like you're talking about, Karen, and like I was mentioning before, I think probably most of us know someone, if not ourselves, who has had some kind of encounter like this. Yeah. And this is real. And so the question is, what is it? Yeah. yeah. What, what, what is it? Know. Mm-hmm. And if you are if you are coming at this from a biblical perspective, the way we are trying to present here, where you are looking for truth, where you're trying to find what God has placed before you, what God wants you to do, what God wants you to believe, you must see that these are not the spirits of our of our dead loved ones. These are not the spirits of people who have been here in the past, who are trying to advise us, who are trying to give us information. Their entire purpose is to deceive, period. And that's why God does not want us to talk to these things, because they are very real, but they will lead you in the wrong way. That's their goal. Right, and I think we need to... Also keep in mind too, and I don't think we've we've crossed this path yet about um, the fallen angels that actually were cast out of heaven along with with Lucifer or Satan. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's their bidding too. Mm-hmm. So you know, I I think we need just to keep that in mind too. And I think really honestly, you know, some of the stuff that you're going to post, you know, as supplemental readings or study guides, will bring this up, and you could follow that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this idea that that oh well the devil's just I mean surely I would know him when he shows up because he's got you know he's red and he's got he's got uh, horns and he's carrying a pitchfork. I would put you back to the most perfect woman that's ever walked this planet, Eve. Mm-hmm. Did she see this? Did she see the devil looking like that? Nope. Absolutely not. He was um, disguised. He was a counterfeit. He was presenting himself not as he was. And that's that's the trick here is that he's to use a common uh, picture word picture a shapeshifter can be whatever he wants to be could be your mother your father your your sibling I, I'll, I'll do a, just a two verse thing here and then and then we can discuss or move on but for the Bible's kind of like and this is why Ecclesiastes uh, chapter nine verse five and six for the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward. No, it doesn't say reward here on earth. It says no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. And their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. They're gone they are out of the picture. Now we see where that picture revives. We see a, a resurrection that happens. Uh, that's there's a lot about that in the New Testament. That's where the dead show up again. In between here and there, they're out of the picture. They are they're not just on the bench. They are not in the arena anymore at all. And so back to Saul's situation here is that he gets this devastating news. And some may ask, it's like, well, how could the spirit know that he was going to die? All right, look, come on. If he's outnumbered and he is totally depressed and he is facing, you know, an army that's 
by all betters, thing's going to kill him. And then the devil says, you might as well give up now because you're going to die. Really, the guy is, it's good odds he's not going to make it. I think, too, that you you look at just the whole story kind of unfolding, all the past, where Saul's at spiritually, what Saul's done, Saul pursuing David, that he's just gone basically off the rails and totally contrary to God, that that's kind of, you know, a given at this point, what's going to happen to him. Yeah. You know, it it's like playing the odds. You know what? The odds are stacked against you. Isn't it easier just to kind of side with almost, you know, the common sense kind of part and go, you know what? It's not going to, you know, bode well for you at this point. You're probably going to die in battle. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like almost giving the obvious and thinking, oh, yeah, he predicted the future. Well, you know, no. He's been watched, you know, Satan can watch everything that you've done so far and just play the odds. And he quotes God. I mean, God made the prophecy that that Saul, kingdom's going to be torn away from you. Satan could, he's got a pretty safe bet saying, this is what's going to happen as long as he's quoting God. Mm -hmm. He does here. He says, the kingdom's going to be taken away from you. Satan didn't say that at first. That was actually Samuel said that. And Samuel said that on behalf of, while he was alive. So, The devil knows that's going to happen. Pretty safe bet to say that. Yeah, mm-hmm. Satan showed up when he showed up in the wilderness to tempt Jesus. He quoted the Bible to put to try and put weight behind his temptations. Like he's yeah. he's well well armed. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so don't he, ever think that the devil hasn't hasn't read the Bible. <laughs> right. We'll get to it eventually, you know. But you know, he had the, he had the ear of God himself. He's been know? here since the beginning. He's watched it all unfold. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he is a fallen angel. He he once he once sat at the right hand of God. I mean, he was second only to Jesus himself. So he's got insight. He he's he has the ability to extrapolate and and, and make uh, educated guesses yes. that are probably far better than than ours. You know, just to put this into context, to compare it. Is I can't remember the name of the people group, but remember when they tricked um, Joshua when they moved into the um, the moldy bread. The moldy, yeah, yeah. Is um, I'm looking them up here real quick. Is that they Gibeonites? It's in Joshua yeah, we, nine. Yeah, these are these are just like regular folks who come up with a trick so good they get the moldy bread, the old shoes, the worn out clothes and they fool Joshua and all the Israelites into thinking that they come from some far 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 distant land. They're just clever people. Like look, if clever people can do this without because it makes a point that Joshua didn't ask God. If clever people can fool God's people, man, don't don't set yourself up against the supernatural because you you'll lose. Mm-hmm. I think that's why um, there's a text in the New Testament that I think about when I when I hear stuff like this. And it says, if it were possible, it would deceive the very elect. Yeah. Same author said we battle not against flesh and blood. Yeah. Well, this spirit does give Saul some some truth about what's going to happen. First Samuel 29 shifts the narrative over to what's happening with David now. Like I said it began, David was had been enlisted by Achish to fight with the Philistines against the Israelites, which is putting David in a terrible position here. Mm-hmm. Um, he's realizing, oh man, I 
probably never should have thrown myself in with the Philistines, even though I wasn't really fighting for them ever. But right. now I'm in a I'm in a position where I'm going to have to kill fellow Israelites. If Saul dies, remember, David never wanted Saul to die. If Saul dies, this is going to fall on David. Right. That that blame is, oh, David killed the king of Israel. You know, that's what's going to happen if Saul dies in this battle and David is is fighting because bet your boots. Everybody knows that David is is involved here if he shows up. And and so all of these um, all of these armies of Philistine are marching out and David is in the back of the row, essentially, with Achish. Well, let me um, throw this at you. OK. David has done this. He's been running all over the country away from Saul. He's he's fought the Philistines before. He's come to the rescue before when Saul had to pull off of him to go fight the Philistines because they were invading. So now you have your old enemy with you that has killed a lot of your people. He's with your army in the back. Mm -hmm. So they're already I don't think there was any questioning David's loyalty. He was always there in some capacity for Israel. So I think that's what spawned the princes to go, okay, why do we have that guy in the back with us? And we've been fighting against him on multiple occasions, mm -hmm. which, you know, the way David's heart was at that point, I'm sure he was wrecked already thinking he had to kill his own brothers. Yeah. So then you have that conflict going on and it was probably written all over his face. So that's why they moved him to the back. And I think that provided once again, God provided a way out for David not to be have to kill his own countrymen. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think it's an example of like one of the most impossible situations. Like how in the world can David figure this out? He can't. <clears throat> There's no good way. He's he's pledged himself to this Philistine king. And at the same time, he doesn't want to kill Israelites. He doesn't want to appear a traitor because, I mean, Achish even uses the word deserted. David deserted to me. So, I mean, he always, David already feels like a deserter. And it's like, oh, man, all the stuff Matt said. So basically, he's in a super impossible situation. And then God, God says, I, I got this. You know, and hence, too, just like, you know, not to add light to it, but we, you know, I said it a, a couple of weeks ago. But then we read the Psalms, and that's why David is singing the blues, because he's in a quandary all the time. <laughs> Yeah, so so all these other all these commanders, I guess some you know, my translation called them princes, they're all looking at the back and going, "Why is he with us? This is a really bad idea because if he if we get out there and he decides to turn on us, this battle is going to go for him." So I mean, they clearly have an idea of David's reputation in battle, no knowing full well that things tend to go his way, and so why is he with us? Because he'll turn on us and we'll lose. You need to make him go away. You need to get him out of here. And at first, Achish is like, no, he's loyal. It's fine. It's going to be fine. And they're like, no, absolutely not. you got to get rid of him. So so Achish says, pulls David aside and says, okay, you you need to just kind of go. You need to, this isn't going to work out for you to be here. So why don't you just take your man and go home, sit this one out. And <laughs> he's, so, he's so convinced that David is loyal. And David does kind of play it up. I'm trying to remember. There was something David said in, in chapter 29. David said, what have I done? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are you sure you want me to leave? <laughs> yeah, I was looking for the actual. <laughs> no, that's the actual words. Like, oh, yeah, it is. There it is. I got it. There, verse 8. 
I was I was trying to scan it and find it. But yeah, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> uh, to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you that I may not go and fight against the enemies of the Lord and <laughs> I my Lord the King? It's like, well, wh- what are you talking about? We're buddies. <laughs> what have I done? It's like, well, like everything, <laughs> you know. But but Achish is is convinced that David is is uh, is is on his side. I don't know if this is just a little vanity on Achish's part, having David there as kind of his his trophy, as his uh, conquest. You know, remember this is the guy who who killed Goliath of Gath, which is where Achish is from. So yeah, his, his pet Israelite hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gives him a lot of honor in this honor culture. Achish is he's he's uh, he's one notch above David, which is that's a thing. That's a real yep. thing. <laughs> so they send David home, and David leaves. The Philistines go towards fighting the Israelites. David turns around. They get back. It's a three day walk, and they see that Ziklag, their hometown, because by this time it's not just David and some ragtag guys. They'll have families. And the city where they were living is in the smoldering heap. It's been raided by the Amalekites. Yeah, they've burned the town. They've taken the women and children. Everything's gone. I guess not maybe not gone, gone, but, you know, it's 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 like you say, it's in ruins. It's been on fire. It's uh, the, the Amalekites have definitely taken advantage of the fact that David was gone. You know, were they were they specifically attacking David or were they just attacking a Philistine town? I don't know 100% for sure, but I would suspect they were, um, I would suspect they knew that that was where David, that was David's uh, base of operations. And David's men all see this and they start to turn on David. They want to, they want to stone David for, for bringing them here and, and aligning with the Philistines and, and just creating a situation that is just, is just horrible. So, you know, I think, too, when we go back and we look when when David started, you know, his running from Saul and ripping and running all throughout the countryside and trying to get away, that we had mentioned, too, that this was these were battle hardened guys. These weren't just, you know, your average, you know, citizens you're going to pluck off the street to go fight a, a battle. And we see this, that this was this bunch was they were rough. And the minute that David, their leader, it didn't kind of go his way and they got, you know, taken advantage of being at some other war that they probably thought they shouldn't be, they get their hometown gets sacked. So what do they do? They're they're wanting to kill David for it. Mm-hmm. I can imagine it's just devastating. You know, you know like so where, these- where's the loyalty to your your commander, your person in charge? They didn't they didn't necessarily have it. Not that was here. a quick turn of events. Yeah. Well, I, I think um, I think all we have to do is look around in modern day society to see that if things don't go well, people switch their loyalties in about a hot second. But but what I was going to say was I appreciate what you're saying about like his men, like why would you bring us to live among the Philistines? But at this point, they don't know who sacked their town. Like they don't know who it is until they set out in pursuit and they find the guy that was left behind and they ask him. Like they don't know who did this. Nobody. It wasn't on the news. Nobody left a note. That's true. Yeah, they didn't know for sure. So they were just they were just mad. Their stuff's gone. 
they have been be they they don't know what they have they been betrayed have they just been victimized but they want to take it out on someone and so they're perfectly willing to take it out on this guy that's been their leader yeah so, well so you know david david takes the opposite course than what yeah. saul usually did i think we've mentioned before saul would would reject god all the time and david immediately i mean immediately goes to find out what god what he what god wants him to do in verse 7, chapter, what are we at, 30? He goes yeah. to Abiathar the priest. And Karen, it was a week or two ago, maybe, we were talking about how he had asked the priest to come and bring the ephod. Yeah. And, and you had speculated that maybe that was because the Urim and Thummim would gone there. I yeah. think this confirms your, your supposition there. Because it says he calls Abiathar the priest, says, please bring the ephod here to me. And mm -hmm. Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So this is where he's asked, he's bringing the ephod because I need you to, to I need to answer a question, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think that confirms that this, this was why he had, had asked for that ephod in the past. And that's why he's asking for it now, because he wants, he wants to ask God. And this was like that direct line, well, kind of direct line going through a priest to, to, um, to consult God using this Urim and Thummim on the ephod. Yeah. But he a he asks God. Good job, David. <laughs> yeah. But he asks God if he should go after him. Uh, let's see, verse eight. Shall I pursue this troop? So yeah, I, in my notes I had written. I think I must have read ahead because I wrote down that he asked if he should go after the Amalekites. But like you say, they didn't know it was the Amalekites yet. But uh, should I go after them? And God says, Yes, go after them, and you are going to get everyone and everything back. It's it's such a counter to what to what the the Samuel spirit thing had told Saul, where where it was total devastation for Saul. Here, David is told, "Yo, you're going to have 100 percent victory." So yes, go after them. So they do. They start pursuing, and they find this Egyptian who had been in a servant of an Amalekite, and they'd left him behind because he was he had gotten sick or something, and. Um, he agrees to lead David to their camp. And so when they get there, when they, when they finally catch up, they find the Amalekites just partying. I mean, I think they probably feel like they've had a huge victory against David and they're just celebrating, I guess really just not paying much attention. I suppose they they think that David's off fighting the Israelites. And so maybe their guard is down, but David and his men, they don't really waste any time. They go and attack they attack them and they fight them for basically 24 hours straight and they kill all but 400 men who got away on camels. And in the process, they recover all of the people who were taken, all the spoils that were taken. Uh, I read in another, in a, some supplemental that probably the Amalekites had, had preserved the people they had taken because they had intended to uh, sell them into slavery. And so, so in this way, God had, had acted on David's behalf there too, where the people, sure they got taken, but they didn't get killed. Nobody got killed in this thing, at least not of of David's men or, or David's um, people. But that, but it also specifically says nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken, like even the flocks. So they not only got all theirs back, but you know, according to the slave that they found. They had raided uh, the Negev, um, some territory belonging to Judah, and the Negev of Caleb. 
So they that mean like there was more stuff. They recovered more stuff than just the belongings of Ziklag. Yeah. And and even though they were feasting, the plunder was not had not been destroyed or or used. They got everything back and then some. Yeah, there's. You wouldn't think there'd be a a good any good reason that they they hadn't dug into some of the stuff, you know, taken some of the animals. I mean, if you're going to have a party, you know, especially that time, you know, what did they always do when they were celebrating something? They go kill a calf or they kill a goat or whatever, and and they barbecue it and ha- you know have a party. They didn't they didn't do that with any of the Israelite stuff here. So all their stuff is safe. All the people are safe. And um, they're soundly, the Amalekites in this case are soundly defeated with only a, a relative handful getting away. Yeah, so put that in context, is that the Bible says that only 400 got away. So how many of David's men were there? 400. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so basically, David took down a vast number of people. And in comparison, quote, only 400 got away. Which was, I don't know what the odds were, but it must have been way, way, way more Amalekites than David's men. So David fought. They got their stuff back. Now, in the way, they had run so hard after these Amalekites that of David's 600 men, 200 basically just, they're like, we can't even breathe. We got to stop. We can't keep up with you. And he's like, fine, stay here. And 400 of them pressed on. Well, now that they've gotten everything back, they're coming back. They meet up with these 200 who were left over who couldn't keep up with them. This is an interesting thing. It goes to David's character. We were talking about this uh, earlier. This is in chapter 30, verse 22. Some of David's men say, hey, because of these guys didn't go with us, the spoil that we have recovered, we shouldn't split it with them. We'll give them back their wives and children, but none of the stuff, because we got all this. And David answers them in 23, you sh- it shall not be no. You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He preserved us and has given into our hand. So David's guys think, look what we did, and David's like, no, this is what God did. Let's keep that straight. Yeah, I was reading somewhere too that this is uh, this this created kind of a tradition that this is right there. Anyone, anyone who was involved at all would share in these spoils because, I mean, the guys who are staying behind, they're not just taking a nap. They're 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 guarding the stuff that's left behind. You know, they're doing something. Yeah, you can't go into battle with all of your all of your travel gear. Right. So David is insistent that, no, everybody's going to share in this because, okay, yeah, you went and fought, but these guys had their part, too. And and we're not going to we're not going to cut them out. Besides, this stuff had been theirs to begin with. You know, I think that that's that's a part of this to factor in, too. Yeah, they you know, people went back and went and got the stuff. But some of this stuff was the stuff of the guys who stayed behind. You know, so the idea they shouldn't get that back. You know, David's like, no, that's not that's not going to happen. We're we're just we're we're all going to share in this together. We're all still we're all still in this. David does send some of the spoils off. To uh, the elders of Judah, though, I took this kind of be like this is this is David. I mean, this is kind of under Achish's nose, you know, that this is David uh, maintaining some relations with his true allies, the ones that he really wants to be allied with, because right. you know he, he he he's he's by he has realized and knew it all along, but has realized that allying himself with Achish was a mistake. Mm-hmm. 
Now, this is the second time he's tried to do that. Both times realized it was a mistake. First time he got out of it by acting crazy and kind of got run out of town. And this time um, he almost had to. He almost had to kill people that he he uh, respected. So part of what the Amalekites had been raiding was territory in Judah. So I'm not sure how much of this is a gift. <laughs> I mean, like, I get it, but I don't know how much of this is a gift and how much of this is returning stuff. Obviously, they came back with more than they left with. You know, mm-hmm. they made their own town whole. And then the the Karathites of the Negev and the Calebites of the Negev and some territories belonging to Judah were all plundered. But I like that he shared this and I liked what he said. He says, here's a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. He never mm-hmm. once loses sight of the fact that this is God's battle mm-hmm. and God's enemies and God's people. So it's not, he doesn't do what his own men did up above and take ownership of it. Like, yeah, we did this. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, I asked of the Lord. The Lord said, go. The Lord said, this is what will happen. We went. This is what happened. We fought the Lord's battle for the Lord. I like that. That's a good priority. Yeah. So the narrative changes again, goes back to the battle between the Philistines and the Israelites in uh, chapter 31. And Israel is losing badly, losing really badly, just getting it handed to them by by the Philistines. Uh, There's just a huge, huge, huge number. And I mean, let's remember, Saul has been discouraged from his encounter the night before. He's probably not leading well. He's convinced, convinced that he's going to die in this battle. And it basically happens. I mean, the Philistines, they, they just, they, they take down Saul. They take down his sons. Saul gets struck by arrows. And I mean, I suppose you can just imagine, you know, it's, I think it said archers found him. Well, you know, our, archers could be pretty accurate and deadly with those with those bows and arrows. So he's probably, his body is probably full of arrows at this point, And he's just, he's terribly wounded. And he asks his armor bearer to kill him so he won't be captured. It's like, take take a sword and run me through so these guys won't take me and torture me. And the armor bearer is like, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. So Saul's like, fine, I'm going to do it myself. He grabs a sword and falls on it, kills himself, finishes himself off. Could he have survived this thing? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But there's no doubt this is the end of Saul right here. And the armor bearer sees it, and he's distraught. He kills himself. And uh, that's pretty much it for for this battle. The Israelites they see that they see that that's the the battle is lost. Uh, Israelites start fleeing the cities. The Philistines start moving in, really taking over things, and Israel is just left in a in a really bad place here. Philistines they find Saul's body, they cut off his head, they take his temple as a trophy, and they put it in one of their temples of of the Ashtoreths. They hang his body on the on a wall in Beth Sharan, or no Beth Shan, and so they are very much parading the idea that they have that they have defeated this king, and and it's it's a pretty ugly thing. Now some men from Jabesh Gilead they go and they retrieve the body of Saul and his sons, and I thought this was interesting. 
they burn the bodies at Jabesh. Usually, you would see people buried when they were in positions of honor. So I thought it was kind of odd that they just burned the bodies instead of putting them in a tomb. Did Was that of interest of any of you guys? Yeah, I'm not sure why that happened. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I that also. Yeah, because, uh, you again, know, I mean... Hmm? You talk about Saul's. You mentioned earlier about Saul. One of the first things he did was putting the mediums out of the out of the country. This is a full circle thing again. This is one of the first good things Saul did was he went and rescued Jabeth. Was it Jabeth? Jabeth Gilead. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. That when we go back a couple of weeks. Yeah. Sorry, Eric, to interrupt you, but that was when he hacked up the the calf and told everybody, "Yep, come on, let's go do this." Right. That's yeah. when he bonded his whole kingdom and really took that kind of kingly role. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they, so they do, they do, they do honor him by going and getting the body. I mean, if they didn't have any feeling for, for Saul at all, I suppose they could have just left the body hanging on the wall and, and they're not having any of that. They go and, you know, that had to have been, I'd kind of be interested in that story, you know, to see what was involved with him getting into the city and taking it down. But they get it, they burn it. They do give it some, you know, a little honor here at least of of trying to, I guess, put the body to rest. They they burn him and they bury the bones under a tree at Jabesh, and they go into fasting for seven days. So it, so there is some there is some honor given to Saul, just not what we usually see. You know, I think too that this this speaks of like any leader that you know there are some good things that Saul did. And then there's things that Saul went off the rails for and and got um, disconnected from God. But I think that how this ends is kind of shows you that, you know what, it was a full circle for Saul that those the people remembered the good things that he had done, that they res- that he rescued them when they needed it. And they never forgot it. And they wanted to at least pay him a little bit of honor in his death. Yeah, he had done some good for him, like you said. So he had gone nuts. I mean, you know, we I think we've <laughs> well established that Saul had gone nuts, but uh, he hadn't. I guess he hadn't been all bad. Not you know, not he'd been really, really focused on David, but he couldn't have been. I mean, there were times when he pulled away from David to go fight Philistines, and like we say, he had he had uh, rescued Jabesh or Jabesh Gilead. So. He was worthy of some honor. He was the king. He had been anointed by God to be king. So I mean, just just the position alone is worth some honor. And yeah, you know, you're making a you're making a, a lot of good points here. And these days, in today's 2021 political climate, somebody is all bad, or they're all good. Like, right. There's just there's this complete inability to say, you know. They did a lot of good stuff, but that thing that they did, man, that was just wrong. People defend any, like, no, 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 no. Everything they did is good. Everything they did is good. Or flipped, flipped aside, no, no, no. Everything they did is bad. They deserve to be banned from everything from forever. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. We're like, we all have more complicated stories than that. And Saul, Saul is one of them. And this is, I think, to just step back and look at the whole picture is that he started out as somebody that God chose. He worked with God. He drifted off into his own way, and he 
got his own way and he, he got deeper and deeper and deeper into himself. And eventually God had to let him go and said, fine, you, you want no part of me, then I, you get no part of me. And the point I see with that is it is possible to start well and end badly. And we will see some other kings and other people later. It is possible also to 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 go the other way, to start badly and to end up well. The point being for us is that where you're at in your story right now doesn't have to be the way your story ends. You know, if you're struggling, if you're not doing well, that doesn't mean that's how your story ends. Flip side is if you're walking with God right now and doing you know, working with him, God still gives you freedom of choice. And and you have the rest of your life to decide where you go and how you end. Is that we're all on a journey and David, oh man, he cycles through a bunch of stuff. And uh and we see Saul do this and it's a sad cautionary tale. I would just like to point out my personal role in modern society. I am a slightly over middle-aged white woman named Karen and my entire existence has been reduced to bad-tempered memes so truth hurts Karen hey (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying like an oversimplification is not accurate and it so I was recently over this is a really short story so i was recently over at a friend of mine's house and her son who's in his 20s and his girlfriend stopped by and they had gone and they had gotten a really nice hotel room for the first time in their life like they had dropped big money on a hotel room and then for whatever reason their room was apparently marked as empty on the cleaning schedule and so that morning the same morning that i was over with hanging out with my my friend the maid had like walked into the room at eight o'clock in the morning uh, and they're asleep, you know, and they're just horrified. Like, Hey, we're still in here. 45 minutes later, a second maid comes in an hour later, a third maid. Okay. So they, they get, they called the front desk and they're like, Hey, we're in here. Like this room is booked. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Four maids later, they finally got up and just left. And I, and so me and my friend asked them, like, well, did you did you say something at the front desk to like that? You paid a lot of money. This was a fancy room. Like, did you say something at the front desk so they could discount your room? And they were like and the, the girlfriend who had met me before but did not know me says, well, I didn't want to be a Karen. And so I we just left. <laughs> yeah. Dangerous oversimplification. <laughs> I am sorry you have to go through that, Karen. But are you I, really? Because you're but, laughing. But it really does kind of make me laugh <laughs> at your expense. Yes. <laughs> anyway, yes. I mean, there are so many nuances to <clears throat> to every situation, and and yep. I am I am repeatedly glad that God is God and I am not because. I look at, you know, like, what did Samuel say when he went to, or um, what um, what did Samuel say when he went to visit Jesse? Like, God looks on the outward appearance, or man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Like, our view is limited. Our view is limited. 
we can only see the things that are right in front of us. And we want to judge everything by that oversimplification. And I'm just, I'm glad that God is God. I'm glad that he knows what's going on. I swear, the longer the world goes on, the more I feel like I need to like just walk around with my Bible and read it constantly because that's the only way I'm going to feel like I'm tethered to the right thing. Mm. Yeah. Well, the last part of our reading was Psalm 18. We'll just touch on it here. We've kind of discovered that the Psalms are the Psalms are really good to read and it's really good to get insight into what's happening. But it is at the same time hard to discuss those feelings, <laughs> you know. So um, so just briefly talking about Psalm 18, it's called Psalm God, the Sovereign Savior. And this is when David was delivered from the hands of all his enemies and Saul. And there's just lots of accolades given to God for defeating David's enemies. So first off, David is not taking responsive, not, not responsibility. He is not taking credit for, for any of the victory that he gets here. We get God referred to as a rock three times here. Like that, I, that keeps be, being brought out and I will bring it out every time I see it. Uh, verse 2, verse 31, and verse 46, he refers to God as a rock. And when we get down the road to, you know, your name is Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, when you put the balance of who's referred to as a rock throughout yeah. Scripture, you know that this is not talking about Peter being being the, the foundation of the church. This is Jesus, this is God, this is... That's who is the rock that the church is built on, not a human being, the God of heaven. So yeah, I said, who is every uh, verse thirty-one? For who is God besides the Lord? Who is the rock except our God? Mm-hmm. So I will point that out every time I see it, just because I think it's so important to understand where that foundation is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so there's some talk about rewards from God according to David's righteousness. I just think that's an interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, an interesting thing but you know do we get do we get rewarded according to what we've done yes and that is a super fascinating topic you see it come up a lot in the psalms and you see it again the other book where i see it a lot is revelation yeah yep and we have conflated these two things to be the same the idea that our righteousness has nothing to do with anything at all whatsoever it has nothing to do with our salvation. David sees this as separate. If you're watching for it, you'll see it. David sees his reward and his salvation as in kind of one column. And he sees salvation. I want to say that right. He sees his righteousness and rewards in one column. But the reward is not the same as salvation. He sees mm-hmm. salvation in a different column. And God gets all the credit for that. Mm-hmm. We see that also in Revelation that there are there is reward for for deeds and what people have done. They're they're judged according to their to what they have done. But that is being judged in that case and, and receiving rewards and and righteousness, which largely in the Old Testament means doing the right thing, is a different column than salvation. If you get those two things mixed up. It starts looking really confusing, you know, mm-hmm. as if David or us were earning our salvation or yeah. flip side that there there's no impact of our behavior, no reward or punishment based on what we have 
done. And their, their summary, I think, anyways, they're both valid. They both have a place. And they are related in the sense that if we have salvation, our behavior will be different. But our behavior does not, cannot earn salvation. It's a different column. Right. There's some talk in uh, verses 25 and 26 about how God works through people, uses human beings. Talks about, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. With the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. So, you know, God works through people. That's what David is saying here. He reveals himself through people. And, you know, we're, we're called to work with God. We're not, we're not called to just sit back and let God take care of everything. We're called to, to cooperate, work with him, achieve his goals. And then verse 50 he, he refers, I think this is the first time I can think of David referring himself to himself as king. Great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. I don't, I don't remember David acknowledging the fact that he would be king or at least speaking it out loud in a way that we've read before. So it's not until after... Saul has been defeated until after David's enemies are are essentially out of the way. That's when David makes some acknowledgement to that. Have you have you noticed uh, him mentioning it before? No, he seems to know this. Right. But he doesn't ever. He doesn't ever put himself out there like I deserve this. I'm going to go get mine. Uh, other people have encouraged him to do this, both in the cave and when he takes the uh, spear, Saul's spear and water uh, jug, which was last week's discussion. Now, like, you could do this, and then, like, there's nothing between you and the kingship, and David just, nope, I'm going to let God do this in God's time, God's way. Okay, well, that'll pretty much wrap up our discussion this week, I think. Uh, I will post some links for deeper study on, on the subject of what happens when we die, um, whether or not those whether or not people are able to talk to us from beyond the grave. I will put them in the show notes. I will try to share things with on, uh, on our Facebook page as well. Our reading coming up the next week, it's going to sound like a whole lot. There's, we're, we're going to get into 2 Samuel. We're going to dip our toes in 2 Samuel. But we're also going to get into 1 Chronicles. And there's a whole lot of Psalms if we want to try to read all of this. We're going to do a lot of skimming next week. But... Um, we're essentially going to jump forward to First Chronicles chapter, what did I say before, guys, 10? Yeah. And we are going to look at Second Samuel 1 through 4. We may talk some about the Psalms. I don't know that we're going to, we're going to, we're going to try to get real deep into any of the Psalms, just because there's a lot there. And like we said, it's kind of hard to discuss how things make you feel, you know, if that, if that makes sense. So uh, I think the focus will be Second Samuel 1 through 4 and First Chronicles chapter 10. There will be a little bit uh, others in, in um, First Chronicles. You can skim through it because I think we're going to want to talk about the prayer of, of um, Jabeth. Jabeth, thank you. I knew that was in there. And it's an interesting prayer, and there was a whole movement about it. Mm. Well, it's been quite a few years, I guess. Probably close to 
close to 20 years ago where the book was written and everything. And, and if you remember that, you remember kind of what a craze that was. But it's an interesting prayer. And so we'll be look, talking about that, too. But while, while you're reading those and waiting for us for next week, you can reach out to us at atbpodcast at theadventure.org. Look for us on Facebook. Please be sure to share this with your friends and family and neighbors. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you get us in your feed each and every week. We look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening. Are you putting together blooper reels? No. (laughs) (laughs) He's just saying that so you'll listen every week to drive up the numbers. (laughs) Outtakes from the Adventures of the Bible. Here's a Star Wars question for you before we get going, Matt. Uh huh. Isn't the isn't the planet where the Endor Jedi happens? Is that Endor? Yes, it is. Return of the Jedi, the Ewoks. The cutest place you could possibly want to be is Endor. Why are you asking about Endor, Eric? Well, because that's chapter 28. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I I never read anything about Ewoks, and they were honestly my favorite part of that planet, so. (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess that's kind of my point, is that, is is it by accident that one of the darkest, most satanic places in the old testament is pitched in modern times as one of the most beautiful place with the cutest little animals that stands for victory i mean subconsciously mix it in somehow could you subconsciously make that any more harmless